This is Cost Talk with Evan Cosman, and you are listening to episode 15. This week on the podcast, we have Blake Murphy, managing editor of Raptors Republic and a Raptors writer all over the place. So, first off, thanks for taking the time out to do it. No uh, problem, man. So, let's start at the beginning. You got a Bachelor of Commerce at Queen's University, and you uh, then went into production control at Toyota Motors. Yeah. So, how does a smart young kid go? F- from a good program, decide, I want to go into the competitive field of journalism? Um, So when I was, I think I was in third year of university at Queens, um, I did like a big March Madness preview just on Facebook. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was like, I went back and looked at it not that long ago, I think at March Madness this year, and it was like 6,000 words. And I'm sure like zero people read it. (laughs) Um, Like after that, I enjoyed writing it. And so when I was in fourth year, I, I started blogging a little bit on the side. And this was like, I'm old. So this is like 2008 when like, Bloggers were kind of just starting to get legitimate mainstream, like like Skeets had just landed at Ball Don't Lie, kind of that time, and, and everyone's still writing under fake names and stuff like that. So I did it on the side, and then I didn't think it was a realistic path. I was actually enrolled in law school, um, coming out of business school, but for like student loan reasons, I was like, oh, I'll push it back a year, and then I started working, and I was like, well, I'm going to just make money instead of going back to school. Um, but like the whole time I was working at Toyota in operations, I would write on the side like once or twice a week for Raptors Republic. And then like that slowly grew to the point where like I was booking fake meetings in meeting rooms to like carve out time to write during my day Hmm. Um, or like volunteering to do night shift work because no one was around and I could bang out some writing. Thank God no one from Toyota would be listening to this. But like (laughs) at a certain point I was like, hey, I either have to like stop this or start taking it seriously. Hmm. Um, So then I went to UBC to do a master's of journalism and kind of just dropped everything to do that. I didn't finish it because a year in, the score hired me, um, mm. and everyone said, you know, like the experience would be better than finishing your degree. I can still finish it at some point. Mm. Um, but yeah, I kind of just made a decision. I did it for fun for a long time, and then at one point I made a decision to try. I thought I was like, or not at the time, but could be good enough to make a living, and mm. not realizing that, you know, the industry is shrinking and almost no one's making a living. But <laughs> We all make mistakes. And no, I mean, you can always go back to finish the master's. You can always go yeah. back to all those other things. But And that's kind of been a huge thing for me, like, now that I'm freelance full-time, too, mm-hmm. is, like, even as the industry shrinks and it's, like, terrifying, at least I have, like, the business background and the manufacturing industry background that like, I have a bit of a safety net. I wouldn't be happy to mm-hmm. land on it, but, like, it, it's let me take a little bit more risk than I might otherwise have been able to. When did you find your niche within your writing? I don't, I don't really know. My niche has kind of changed a couple times. Like mm-hmm. when I first started, it was almost, I was kind of like, I mean, 2007, 2008, 2009, that window, like a lot of people were kind of just like Bill Simmons derivative. And like, I was guilty of that too. Not to, not to like the barstool level of derivative of <laughs> Simmons, like with all the bad parts, but like very much like trying to be jokey and stuff like that. So like I tried that at first and then after a while, um, when I was working, I was only writing Raptors stuff. Uh, but then when I went to school, actually, the niche that I kind of had for a little bit, I was writing all sports, and I was almost only doing analytics stuff. Um, so hockey, baseball, basketball, even a little bit of football stuff, like with a fantasy spin. So that was kind of it for a little while. And like I was going to Sloan conferences and stuff. I don't have the math or computer programming background, but like I could play around enough in Excel and a little bit of R, like piece together some stuff. So And then the, when the score hired me, the reason, one of the reasons they wanted to hire me was because I was a generalist and could do all the sports. But then like really quickly, it was like, hey, we need you on basketball. And then it kind of went from there. And like, I don't really like, 
Raptors is my niche, if that's even a niche. But like wherever it's wherever I've needed to go, I just kind of went to and it just kind of worked itself out that way. Do you think there's difficulties managing writing between all the different sports and sort of trying to keep track of all of them? Yeah, for sure. Um, the thing I've run into sometimes is like, like the other day, for example, I wrote a CFL thing for Vice and I hadn't written a football thing in so long and I don't really follow CFL that well. So I didn't want, like, it was strictly like a news thing uh, about them cutting the contact from practices with player safety in mind. So there are skills that you pick up that are transferable to all the sports. And there are some people who do a really good job of being able to do all the sports. And what's important when you do that is to recognize then that you're not an expert in anyone and don't write like an, like, Mm. I wouldn't swoop in on a CFL and make claims as if I'm an expert and as if I know that sport. Really, the only two sports I feel comfortable writing about at that level now are basketball and baseball. I love hockey, but like it overlaps too much with basketball for me to stay up to date on the, mm. the newest stats and the newest trends and like know the Leafs and I know the guys on my fantasy team. And then, you know, I follow the Panthers a little bit because I have a buddy who works for them. And oh. like, I don't know, I, like, I, I think there are some people who can generalize and they do a good job, but you have to very much like know that you're generalizing and you're not an expert in any field because otherwise you I I don't know I don't know what readers would think of it but like you know if you're a columnist that's one thing because you're doing big picture pulse of the team or city stuff Mm -hmm. um but yeah I wouldn't want to swoop in like if the athletic like if all their Leafs people got sick or something I wouldn't swoop in and like try to write like James Myrtle so I mean there's a there's a difficulty to it part of it is just how much you follow it and how much work you put into like there are people who do it capably mm-hmm. um, and I do some baseball stuff and I think I do it fine but it's be- a lot of that is because basketball and baseball the schedules work mm-hmm. out nicely you can stay focused on both of them pretty deeply some of the best so or maybe not best but the some of the most interesting career advice I got early on was someone I, I was asking someone basically this like should I pick one sport and even beyond that, should I just be the analytics guy? You know, there are some people on basketball Twitter who are just the salary cap guys or, um, you know, you can really work out a good spot as a Kevin Pelton or a Tom Haverstrow, be that kind of, I'm going to communicate the analytics stuff. And what I got told was generalize until you're paid to specialize, which was like pretty good um, for like what I was doing because I was in journalism school and like writing a bunch of stuff. So it was like basically like do what you're doing like until there's a good reason not to. But there's also something to be said to be like, to just like really owning your corner, like Pelton and Haberstroh or the guys who do the cap work or whatever. Because yeah, I mean, the more you dig into, you can only, you can only allocate so much time and energy into knowing everything, right? So, so yeah, I mean, I think it's going to vary person to person how much you need to focus on one sport or one area. So what were the difficulties, I guess, determining which sports you wanted to focus on? Or was it because you were pushed into it by the score and it just sort of naturally happened? Yeah. Like that, it, it was just kind of naturally like what the score needed. Like I, I grew up, I only played hockey and I only watched and followed hockey till maybe like, like the Vince Carter dunk contest. Like I started paying attention to mm-hmm. basketball a little bit, but I didn't really dive into it until like maybe grade 11 when I kind of stopped playing hockey at a competitive level. And like baseball went to two or three games a summer with my family, but I never played. So neither of those was really a priority. But then like when I was in first year university was the NHL lockout season. Mm. And then I got huge into basketball. Um, So by the time I started writing, I kind of had all three sports um, and I didn't have a preference at all. Like I liked writing about them each the same and I like watching them all the same. But yeah, when I got to the score, they just like basketball was the path to, 
you know, not, not in like a cynical way, like this is my easiest way to be more important. Like they had a big need on basketball. Um, so I went in that direction and like, I mean, at that point, my portfolio was probably stronger in basketball than any other sport anyway, from Raptors Republic and some stuff like that. Hoop Data, which kind of predated Nylon Calculus as an analytics site. Yeah, and then, it, but it was basically like, had I landed at the score and they were like, we really need someone to lead up baseball, or, you know, it would never ha- happen in Canada, but hey, we need someone to lead up hockey, like just as easily gone those roads too. It would have been fine. Like, I'm happy if it was basketball. And yeah. I think basketball is like, it's probably the easiest to write about because it is so personality driven and it's from an entertainment perspective it's so rich mm-hmm. uh, with different ways you can tell stories and the way the games play out and stuff so you bring up two points that i want to follow up sure on. let's start with the personalities in the sport i actually talked about this with greg last week about how hockey players aren't really allowed to express themselves it's a cookie cutter league in the, for the Dude, most media part. days this week it's not the same. No. Uh, and also, uh, with a lot of the reporters are asking the same questions on the other side, so it doesn't leave a lot of room for creativity. How do you think the NBA does it better in the sense that they allow their stars to breathe and actually be themselves? I think that's. I think part of it is the was in your question is that they allow the players to breathe and be themselves. And I mean, they have some built-in advantages where the rosters are smaller, the best players are more important, and then. The game is viewed very close up and no one's wearing helmets and everyone, you know, during cutaways after plays and stuff like that, you can very clearly get to know what a player looks like and what they act like and what their game is like, where with baseball, there's not as much like it, like no one has as much screen time. Mike Trout might not get picked out of a lineup because, you know, he's only on screen for five minutes of a, mm-hmm. of a baseball game where LeBron's on screen the entire time. It, it, baseball also runs into something that... Um, I think it was Michael Schur called one time that like baseball is kind of a confederacy of fan bases rather than like a national game, yeah. which is really interesting. And I think that that plays to the NBA's favor where the NBA is very much like it is regional, but like it's nothing for a Toronto based person to be a Lakers fan. Or I, I remember one time on the Raptors Republic podcast, I had a halftime performer on a guy named Christian Stoinev who grew up in Florida and just by chance is a giant Raptors fan and he got to do the halftime short of Raptors game. And so like, I think the NBA lends itself more to that. And then like the access you get in terms of getting to know a player just through the sport itself is, you know, like football, everyone's in a helmet, hockey guys have helmets on and you know, the Sidney Crosby is important, but he's on the next 25 minutes out of 60 instead of 40 out of 48. And um, so I think there are a few small advantages like that. And then I don't know how much of it is, where the the culture around basketball has kind of intertwined with the entertainment culture a little bit more than other sports where, you know, there is the, there's a clear tie into hip hop culture and maybe I'm biased in how this came about because at the time I started watching basketball, like, and one was hot. I I don't know. Having that as like kind of a a subculture of the sport is I think important in in building that, that character because, you know, there are guys who like Ray Frost with the Raptors, like came from and one. So I think, you know, having that as a subculture of the sport lends itself to it. And uh, and then I think the NBA just does does a good job of, I mean, we saw the NBA and the NBA Players Association the other week encourage players to speak out about um, political issues and stuff like that. So I think the NBA does give them that freedom. And more than in other sports, maybe there's kind of that feeling of you can be a personality and won't be looked down on. And I don't, like, I shouldn't, I can speak only really to the NBA. I've been in MLB locker rooms a little bit. Um, I haven't been in NHL locker rooms. I've been in junior hockey locker rooms. And like, what was interesting about that is that 
talking to like 16 and 17 year olds, like they've clearly been media trained already and know not to like, they're saying playing a 200 foot game, just got to play at both ends of the ice and, you know, good Lord willing, the, the pucks will bounce our way. <laughs> so it's, yeah. So I, I can't compare like what the NHL guys are like in the locker room, but the NBA guys are like, for the most part, especially the established guys who are made a little bit, uh, pretty comfortable like being themselves and saying what, answering earnestly and stuff like that. Sometimes to a fault, maybe. Yeah. Um, so you have developed like relationships with probably a course of the Raptors players. You interact with them very frequently. I've noticed you, you tend to, not skew, but you tend to talk about your interactions with Bebe and like the younger guys a little bit more. Can you speak about what the difference is in talking with a, a young guy who maybe isn't established versus the stars, what the contrast you see there? For sure. Um, and part of the reason I do that, one is because I haven't been on the beat as long as other guys. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan don't, haven't been building a relationship with me for years. I've only been going with access for like three years. So mm-hmm. um, part of it is that, you know, those guys are tough to get anyway. And then I haven't been in from the ground floor building those relationships with them. So part of it has kind of been strategic where, you know, I'm at the Hershey Center all the time. So when Bebe gets sent down on assignment or Norman Powell gets sent down on assignment, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a face that they're seeing and, and talking to more often. And then I think I find those stories interesting anyway. Um, the more the fringier guys like, I don't know. It, the thing is, is that everyone is talking to DeMar DeRozan and Kyle Lowry every game. Mm-hmm. So you kind of, if you want to do different stuff, or if you want to get different perspectives, you kind of have to go away from those guys. And like, it's not like, it's not even like you have to do a trade off because all those videos would be up on YouTube after. Um, part of it is like access. Part of it is I haven't been there long enough to build the relationships with the higher end guys. So, you know, you kind of work to build the relationships with the guys that are coming up. Yeah. And then in terms of difference of how they, you know, how they answer and how they handle things, you know, it, it varies very much guy to guy. Like Bebe is obviously very open um, and very emotional and like, he'll, he'll tell you what's on his mind. Um, Norman Powell has like gotten a lot better, but when he first came, he was like pretty straightforward. Like that just motivates my grind. Like I'm just going to, I'm just here to grind like that kind of stuff. And he's opened up a little bit. And DeMar is actually a really interesting case because when he, his first couple of years in the league, like up until maybe he made his first all-star team, like he was not a good quote. Like he was like Terrence Ross levels of like, he seemed shy and they would be like one sentence answers and a little quiet. And then he gave that, like we out here, like Michael Phelps quote. And then it took off where DeMar is just like an amazing quote after that. And like, he's very good with the analogies now. And um, it's weird. So sometimes I think guys like that's part of learning the league and learning those responsibilities. And like um, a guy like Powell, like he was at UCLA and, and was a prominent player there for two years. So he probably was more used to it than some other guys coming in. Like, Fred Van Vliet came in and he's really polished with it because he was, you know, Wichita State fans are crazy. So mm. yeah, I'm sure he did lots of media while he was there. But like, then you have like DeLon Wright came in and he's pretty shy and he was two years at a Juco and then two years at Utah. So even with, you know, the NBA pedigree, you could see why maybe it would take him a little bit of time to open up. So it kind of varies guy to guy. And I don't know, I just, it, it's a good way to get different perspectives and you're not going to get... Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan very often anyway, one-on-one or mm-hmm. in a, a scrum isn't the best place to ask like X's and O's stuff or like more interesting stuff anyway. So, so you talked about just recently getting access. What goes into, for like people who are starting out, what goes into actually getting that access? So when I was with the score, 
this was this would have been 2013-14 season was my first season with the score. So I guess I've had partial access for four years. I had applied as Raptors Republic, and the score at that point was also planning on sending people in the field occasionally. So I went a couple, like a handful of times, basically just to learn the ropes and like just kind of latch on to Holly McKenzie and James Herbert. And he's like, hey, show me what to do and what not to do. Um, so that year I went a couple times just to get my feet wet. Uh, I went to one of the Nets playoff games with press access, which was crazy. Mm-hmm. And like that was the no cheering in the press box thing. That game is the only time I've like almost messed up because <laughs> like Amir had a big dunk at, at like a pivotal part in one of the games. And it was just like, it was Amir too on top of the big swing in the series. So then the, the year after that, the score was kind of pulling back on that. So I didn't really get to go as much, but I tried to make keep in contact with the Raptors media relations staff. So they knew who I was still and knew that I wanted to come more um, on the Raptors Republic side. We had to clean up some stuff. Like we had people who were still writing under fake names. Mm-hmm. And even though I was going to be the only person coming um, and that we had the ESPN true Hoop affiliation stuff, we had to clean up some stuff like that. So yeah, then, uh, so it would have been to 2015, 16, they basically gave, they were like, this is my first year freelancing, not being at the score. They were basically like, okay, you can have a press pass, but like, I wasn't, also wasn't living in town at the time. Mm. So it was like, I was coming like two games, two or three games a month. And then last year was the first time that I had like full time and I was at every game and like a lot of the practices. And that's when like, it really, like the value of it really picks up. It's cool to go in once in a while if you have occasional access and like, do like get in, get your story and get out. And like, it's a cool experience. Um, but for, for me as like someone who's strictly Raptors, the being there every day is how you start to build up the stuff where like, baby, will say funny things to you and feel mm-hmm. comfortable like saying that to you. And, or, you know, you're in the right place at the right time and, and get someone unexpectedly. So yeah, I don't like if someone were going for the first time, like it can be a little bit overwhelming, but like it all operates pretty much the way you think it would operate. And, like, go in, scrum up, get out. Don't like, and basically the only rule is like, don't be a jerk, right? Yeah. Like, don't don't get in the way, and don't you know, just be respectful of the fact that it's someone else's workplace. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty. I, I don't know if I answered your question directly, but no, you did. I want to take it back to your actual writing. There is a perfect J. Cole quote from Let Nas Dam, which is, "I used to print Nas raps and tape them up on my wall. My friends thought they was words, but it was pictures I saw." Did you have a writer or analyst that you looked up to when you started to get into it that said, I really respect what they're doing and I want to incorporate that stuff into my work? Yeah, there are a few people and like you run the risk sometimes of reading some like there are risks of like getting of having that and then trying to be too much like them. And like I think everyone knows that now like Zach Lowe is the gold standard. Nobody blends reporting and analysis and video work and all the elements nearly as well as Zach Lowe. And I think like a lot of the the better basketball writers at like a lower tier, like kind of use him as the model. And like I said earlier, like 2008 to 2010, like people were kind of using Bill Simmons as the like, okay, this punchy jokey way is the way in. And I, I didn't, I don't think I really, other than ripping off Simmons's mailbags um, for, for easy content for a really long time, I don't think I took too much from that, but like early on, um, like, the Basketball Jones guys were actually, like, a big, big... Like, I, I got to know them a little bit into, the, like, as early as 2008, I think, um, when they were still, like, podcasting in their kitchen like this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, kind of following them and, like, seeing how they evolved and what they were doing. And, like, I mean, you want to talk about guys who blend the comedy aspects and the, the entertainment value of the sport with actual analysis. Um, mm-hmm. Those guys are, like, top of the line. And, I mean, not related to me, but for anyone in the industry, they're also an unbelievable example of, like, 
how once you get success to like stay legitimately awesome people. Like they're the best dudes. Mm. Um, so early on, they were they were people that I, I followed a lot. More recently, when I started taking it seriously, um, Zach Lowe is one. Jonah Carey is a guy that I like looked up to a lot. And he was super good to me. Um, mm. I helped him on his expos book a little bit. I did a lot of the transcribing on that basically as a way to just get to know Jonah and pick his brain a little bit. There are a couple other ones. Like when I was doing analytics stuff, um, like Russell Carlton, who people might know as pizza cutter was like really, really helpful. Eno Saris, when I was doing fantasy stuff, there, there's kind of, as I've gone to different places, just try to pick up different stuff from different people. Cause like everyone has strengths and you're not going to be like someone else. Like if I, if I'm writing fan graph stuff, I'm not going to be Jeff Sullivan. I can't do Jeff Sullivan as well as Jeff Sullivan does. And I can't do Zach Lowe as well as Zach Lowe does. But if you can read different people and like find areas that either you can improve on or, you know, different approaches to what you're writing, especially if it's like the nittier, grittier stuff, like the analytics or the, the contract stuff, or even the film stuff that Zach does, like learning, like finding other people who do a good job of what you want to do and just like, reading them a lot is a good way to get better. So I'm not trying to like cop anyone's style, but you pick up little things from everyone and mm-hmm. kind of mega man your way to <laughs> who you are. Hi there. Sorry for interrupting the interview with Blake. Just wanted to say, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. I hope you enjoy the content so far. If you do and are listening to this on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, if you could be so kind to give us a review, it would definitely mean a lot. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the podcast and welcome to the family. Feel free to catch up on old episodes and share the podcast with as many people as you like. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview. So you mentioned analytics and you mentioned in the past how that was stuff you were writing about. So basically you've written for fan graphs, nylon calculus, and beyond the box score about analytics. Yeah. MLB fans have embraced analytics. It's full blown over there. NHL fans, I think they're starting to pick up on it. There's definitely a lot of steam in that direction. NBA, it's developed, but I don't, I wouldn't say maybe the same ways or embraced the same ways by the average fan as they are with the other sports. How does wrestling embrace analytics? wrestling oh man um so actually what what's funny about this is like it sounds jokey um and it sounds silly one i have totally had an idea for like a, a heel manager who like uses saber metrics to dictate their wrestler strategies before and i think it would be super annoying yeah. where like this manager is just like no like you can't you can't use the top rope in this situation. There's only an X percentage chance that you're going to get the pin. And they would be the most annoying heel character ever. <laughs> but also, there's a guy um, named Chris Harrington. He goes by Mookie Ghana on Twitter. But he actually does some, like, wrestling analytics. Not from, like, a... Obviously, it's scripted, so... Yeah. Um, breaking. So you can't be like, well, this guy has this chance to win. Um, but he does a lot of analytics with, like, their business side. Mm. So, like, what ratings are like when different guys are in different spots or, like what their financials have been like in different eras or like with this guy as the champion. So it's funny, like there are people who like try to look for stuff. And I think it's just like some people just think that way analytically. And that's how some people view the world and, and mm-hmm. want to understand it. I don't think we're going to get anything like, like for the public fan, the, the deepest you might get is like Dave Meltzer's star rating. Like that's it. That's a, this guy mm-hmm. averages 4.5 stars. That's probably as deep as we're getting. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to come up with something better though. But <laughs> No, the uh, manager being an analytical mind and bringing that to the field, I feel like would be hilarious. It would be so annoying. It, it, it could also be very annoying, yes. That's uh, the point, though, if you're, if you're a bad guy manager. You mentioned that wrestling is scripted. How do you 
how do you divide that part of it and also a general fandom of the sport? Yeah, I, I don't know. Um, like, it, it, first of all, the telling people on Twitter that wrestling is real and arguing with them that it's real is like my favorite. <laughs> is my favorite running gag, and I have a couple friends. We have a DM thread to talk about uh, wrestling and usually Toronto Wolfpack rugby. For whatever reason, those two things overlap. But anyway, yeah, it's uh, that running gag is hilarious to me. But it's it's weird. It's kind of like I think part of why at least a certain segment of wrestling fans enjoy wrestling so much is because more than like. During the offseason, like basketball fans, for example, love sitting down and like, the team should do this. The Raptors should sign this guy to that. Let this guy go make this trade. And this is what the lineup will look like. Well, wrestling kind of lends itself to that a little bit in terms of like the fantasy booking where like you can sit there and be like, oh, this match is coming up. Like who should win? And like what might the storyline look like from there? And like it seems kind of silly and like kind of like like fantasy booking is really what it's called. But then, like, you look at it and you see the way people started reacting to Game of Thrones once they outstripped the books. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know the script that Game of Thrones was going off of. Mm-hmm. And people would start, are you caught up on Game of oh, Thrones? Oh, 100%. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So people would start arguing, like, this thing makes no sense. Or they should have done this. Or they should have revealed this this way. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of, it kind of got to a similar point where, like, you know it's scripted. Mm-hmm. And you know that it's going to continue to be scripted. And you probably know where it's going with some of the bigger points, but you still want to like hypothesize and argue about how they could get there. And the best way to tell that story. And I don't know, that's probably like a small segment of wrestling fans, like the internet wrestling fans or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, Smarks as the, the people call them. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think that's an interesting part of it where like the way people fantasy book uh, basketball teams or baseball teams Mm -hmm. and like try to manage or like even just play fantasy sports. Like, there's no outcome from it, but like, there's a little bit of like, you can argue and try to see where things are going. And mm-hmm. I don't know. So I think like it being fake actually opens things up for a certain segment of the crowd. And something I found really interesting. And I asked, I've asked a couple people, a couple analytics guys with teams that I know like wrestling mm-hmm. about it. That analytics basketball Twitter is overlaps heavily with wrestling Twitter mm-hmm. on my timeline, at least. So like, if there's like if the Royal Rumble or WrestleMania is going on, you're gonna see like the guys normally tweeting about RPM yeah. are tweeting about like John Cena and Roman Reigns. I I kind of want to dig into why that is. I don't really understand it yet, mm. but there's something there with wrestling analytics and like trying to predict the booking and stuff like that. There's something there with analytics and wrestling. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, I, I I don't follow enough people to see that and. As not the biggest wrestling fan, maybe I'm thankful that. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> you probably should be. It's funny. There's a there's a tweet I always see get retweeted when people are talking too much about wrestling and it's like welcome to twitter here's a copy of the communist manifesto and for some reason a season past the monday night raw <laughs> it's like this is apparently what twitter is like wrestling twitter gets big during dead times that's really funny so you mentioned about how there are these different communities within twitter how do you find the perfect way to interact with people i mean that's kind of a constant challenge like it, it goes through stages and it depends what your goals are for it. And like, mm. obviously as someone who writes, like Twitter is a great way to get my content out there and get my name out there and grow my following. But I don't want to like, I don't really want to go about it like that because then it would seem disingenuous. Like mm-hmm. um, there are people who treat it very professionally too. And it's just a professional tool. I kind of just want to be myself on it and then also tweet out my work. But in terms of responding to people, it's interesting because when I had, um, you know, no followers, and I was starting out, it's kind of, you kind of try to 
not hunch up isn't the right term, but you're trying to interact with people who you look up, like, so at that time, you know, I'm trying to respond to a Jonah Carey tweet or Drew Fair service or someone who I want to interact with and I like their work and I would like Mm. to like interact with them on Twitter. And then it got to a point where, you know, I was kind of known for Raptors Republic and because that was a a team blog and I was getting a little bit of access, like I kind of felt like it was my duty to respond to everyone because I, I almost felt like, and I still kind of feel like because Raptors Republic is a fan community um, and because I think a lot of people like a, to have a blog voice in addition to the mainstream media voice because they feel it's a little more representative to them. I feel like I should respond to everyone, at least everyone who's not being an asshole, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's kind of hit a point where you get to a certain following and it becomes really, you can get bogged down. Like it, during mm-hmm. a game, it's really hard to keep up. Um, and I know, you know, yes, Kyle Lowry shouldn't be on the floor in a 15 point game with two minutes left. I get, I know, I know. Yeah. Um, but so it, get, it can get a little hard. I still try to respond to everyone, um, especially like with mailbags and stuff. Or if I, I don't know, I, I was do. I've done a thing a couple times this off season where, um, just like putting out random questions, just try to get to know the people that follow me a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't really know. Like I don't know how long Twitter's going to last, and I don't know. Like it's not nearly as useful as a tool for promoting work as Facebook. But I don't mm-hmm. really like Facebook. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know, man. Twitter, Twitter can be really bad sometimes when people get bogged down in NBA rank arguments or analytics first eye test mm-hmm. arguments and stuff like that. And like, especially after games when people are frustrated, but it can be also be a really good tool. Like I've made some like legitimately good friends off of Twitter and like you, you know, at an event like last night at hoop talks, you get to meet some people who follow you and interact with you. So, mm-hmm. um, I don't have like a rule for it, but I try to respond to everyone who tweets at me at least to keep the conversation going. And because I know like there was a time where like, you know, you want to be acknowledged and you mm-hmm. want to be a part of the conversation and stuff like that. So no, for sure. Like with a person like me starting out when I can send an email to 30 people, when the three people that respond, those are that, that's when you like genuinely feel good. Like when you respond, it was, it was felt incredible. Yeah. It was like, you get, go ahead. Sir. No, no. Um, yeah. And really like part of it too, is like, I wouldn't have a, a job. Like if Raptors probably didn't have the readership, it did. Or, like, when I write stuff at the, at the Athletic, if people didn't click that stuff, like, I wouldn't be able to do this for a living. So I'm super grateful that, it, like, I don't – no writer exists without a readership. So, I mean, so I feel like part of it is that these people are, whether directly or not, like, paying my salary. And then also, like, I don't know, man, we're all, like, just enjoying the sport together. Like, it's not like I'm writing because, like, I think I'm the smartest basketball person. I'm writing because I really like basketball and I was okay at writing at it. So, mm-hmm. like, I don't know. We're all trying to enjoy the game together and enjoy basketball or enjoy the Raptors or Raw or whatever it is. Um, so let's go back to that writing. You mentioned Raptors Republic. How did the job there come about? So ESPN was launching the True Hoop Network in, mm-hmm. I want to say it was 2009. It might have been, I think it was 2009. Um, and that was headed up by Henry Abbott, who had been signed from his blog, True Hoop, to ESPN. And they wanted, basically they wanted an SB Nation setup pre-SB Nation, but mm. every site would be independent. It would just be, like everyone had an ESPN bar at the top. ESPN would do a daily link dump of interesting oh. articles from around the network. And then it was kind of assumed that like, you'd push each other's content. So like, if it's Raptors Bucks, I'm going to bring a Bucks guy on the podcast, or I'm going to do a quick back and forth with a Bucks guy, link to their content, they'll link to our content. Mm -hmm. Um, That way everyone could kind of grow together and there would be, you know, without ESPN investing in 30 markets, ESPN would have a property to represent all the fan bases. Um, So at that time, Zarrar and Sam, who 
um, own Raptor Republic with me. They had their own blogs uh, doing Raptor stuff, and they were kind of approached, and they kind of came together to be one, and then they asked me to join. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one other guy, who, too, who's run the forums for as long as they've existed. So, yeah, the four of us, it was Zarar and Sam, really, but the four of us since then had kind of come together, and, yeah, I mean, that was really it. ESPN wanted a site, and there wasn't really a Raptors blog that made a lot of sense on its own, so they just kind of grabbed those two guys, and then they grabbed me, because I was... I had my own site where I was writing about anything. Mm-hmm. Um, like I had interacted with them. So they grabbed me to do Raptor stuff with them. And that was it. Like, so the true network doesn't exist anymore. Like Henry moved up ESPN too quickly. And like the true network just kind of, it didn't exist. Like, I think, I think there are still technically like 12 or 15 sites that are active, including us, but like, we're not, we're only loosely affiliated to where like, if we need help getting a credential for a big MB, like all-star or something like that, they'll help us out. But like, there's not really a relationship there anymore. But yeah, Raptors Republic probably wouldn't exist, have existed without that project because it kind of took these small blogs that had a couple hundred readers at the time, put them together with a little bit of push behind it. And then hundreds became a couple thousand readers. And I mean, the biggest, really the biggest part of Raptors Republic's success probably has been that it's been around for so long. Mm-hmm. It just like, if like blogs close and open up so much that, and it's, it'll be like, it probably is a big strength of SB nation, but like longer term, it'll be a strength too, is that like the reliability and like having a known name that isn't closing and reopening or like switching branding or whatever is, and the forums, the forums, people, I don't go on the forums a lot. People but, like, love the forums. People love the forums. Actually, someone in our forums broke the Kyle Wilcher signing news. Who, oh, was he, really was the, he was one of the extra guys for the 20 days or yeah, 10 days for, things. for a training camp. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. So, yeah, someone in the comments was like, I don't know who this guy is, but uh, I got told the Raptors are signing Kyle Wilcher. What can you guys tell me about him? And, like, it was hilarious. It was funny because this guy had, had called him Kyle Wilcher. He, he, like, credited him for the wrong college. So he, he really didn't know anything other than the name, but he broke the news. And then, like, a day later, it was public news. It's like, man... How does he get, like, is he just some random just guy? just knows a guy, I guess. Yeah. Um, I actually, I had someone on the trade deadline. Um, I could never run with this news. It would just, but, like, someone told me, like, third hand that the Raptors were getting P.J. Tucker. Oh. And, like, I had written about P.J. Tucker as a target, and, like, I thought it was on the table. Um, but when the rumors kept coming out that Phoenix was staying hard on wanting a first-round pick, and it was, like, 255, and someone texted me. It's like, hey, I heard from a guy who heard from a guy that, like, P.J. Tucker's coming back. Like, I don't know how you get this information. I could never run with something like that as, yeah. like, an actual source. But yeah. it's weird, man. People hear stuff without being directly in the organization. I don't know how it happens, but... Just being in the right place. Right, right place, time. right time. Or, like, you oddly know someone who knows someone. How do you fight that feeling where, like, oh, there's a chance that this is real. I kind of want to be the first one on it. Yeah, I mean, the stuff that I've broken is, like, some of it has been right place, right time. Or, you know, you build relationships and then for whatever reason, it comes out during a conversation. But yeah, with something like that, the trade deadline's a bad example because I, like, it's 2.55 at the trade deadline. No one's going to respond to me anyway. And, like, I don't have, I'm not big enough that I have a a relationship with, like, national-level agents. Like, a couple Mm -hmm. of smaller agents who have, like, a handful of clients, sure. But, like, PJ Tucker is not getting back to me. And, like, no one in the Raptors is going to comment at that point. But, like, the Wiltshire thing... That, had I noticed it in the forums, I absolutely could have, like, I could have broken that news if I had noticed it, or broken it. I would have credited the guy in the forums, Mm -hmm. obviously. But had I noticed that in time, I definitely would have, like, 
kick the tires or like send the DM or message an agent or something like that to try. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause like you do want to be first, but the more way more important thing is like, I don't ever want to report something wrong. Right. Because I know that there are people who report stuff wrong and it doesn't hurt them. And like the incentive structure is probably tipped the wrong way, but I don't want to ever get something wrong because then for me, like the next time I report something, why would anyone believe me? Right. I'm like, I'm not established enough where like, I can just be like, well, I have enough hits that one miss won't hurt. Like, mm-hmm. I, can't, I can't get anything wrong. So no. something to chase something like it's gotta be, it's gotta be pretty reliable for me to go with it. And like I've, lost out like I've sat on stuff before because I wasn't a hundred percent sure and someone else ended up beating me to it but mm. it's like it, the big one was Stackhouse as the 905 coach oh yeah I got my friend Chris Riker who does um two ways in 10 days at the time it was ridiculous upside mm. um the D-Lee he's the D-Lee guy he beat me to it and like we were DMing after and like I just like it wasn't on reliable enough authority for me to like go with it yeah. And probably from your perspective, it's also probably better to have the better analysis than it is to actually break the news. Yeah, and that's something that I've done too, is like when I know something's coming and either I'm asked not to go with it or I'm not 100% sure, you'll see sometimes, I'll tweet out a breaking story and I'll already have like 700 words. It's like, I knew, but I couldn't go with it. So, I mean, th- like I'm not I'm not aiming to be Woj or Shams, so like getting that stuff is nice and it feels like a little victory, but like it's not, it's not what people are coming to me for, so I don't... Uh, I don't feel too much pressure, but it's a weird game, man. When once you start to learn and like being at summer league and like seeing the way different reporters interact with agents and stuff like that, it's it's interesting, man. It, like that has to be to do that well. That has to be like your full time grind. We're gonna call it here for this episode of the two part interview with Blake Murphy. As I said last week, this conversation went on for over an hour and a half worth of content before editing, so I decided to divide the episode into two parts. The first half, which you just listened to, follows the typical structure of the podcast. We went through the backstory of Blake's work and how he got into the business. The second half, episode 16, will be released later this week and it will be more of a free-flowing NBA conversation with tons of Raptors talk. It's basically a bonus episode and I'm really excited for you to listen to it as it was a blast to record. Be on the lookout for that. And remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on that in future episodes.